Good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you in. We just wrapped up a section on angelology. I gave an introductory lesson uh, talking about the doctrine of angels in general. Scott gave a lesson um, talking about Satan, dealing with the doctrine of who he is, what his character and nature is, his history, his future. And then last week, um, I addressed the subject of demons, fallen angels, and gave an overview of that. So let's pray, and we'll jump into sort of our summary, review, Q&A um, lesson for this week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for how it reveals and teaches, uh, how it gives us clarity about the things uh, that you want us to know, the things you want us to understand. Lord, as your word says, the secret things belong to the Lord. There's some things we don't get to know, some questions we may not get answered in this life. But your word tells us the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. The things that your word speaks to are for us. So Lord, help us to press more deeply into what your word says, to understand it, to compare scripture with scripture, and to let your word be our final authority in all things. Pray for your blessing on this time this morning. Amen. Uh, a couple things before we open it up for questions, and one is just a, maybe a simple recommendation. Um, if you guys enjoy this sort of format, if you often have questions about what does the Bible mean when it says this, I just want to make a recommendation to all of you of a resource. I'm, I'm convinced that every Christian home should have at least one or two good study Bibles. Um, uh, two of my favorites that I would recommend, if you don't have a study Bible at home, um, would be the MacArthur Study Bible. Um, that has John MacArthur's notes, so the top half is going to have scripture, the bottom half will have those explanatory notes. And then the other study Bible that I really love is put out by Crossway, it's called the ESV Study Bible. And um, I like the MacArthur Study Bible because it's, it's very narrow and focused in its theological perspective, and so am I. And I tend to mostly agree with John MacArthur more often than not, so I, I really trust what he has to say on most things. Um, the ESV study Bible has a different benefit in that it, it's not just one man's notes or observations. It's um, a bunch of different scholars that they've gathered together. So you may have one person creating the notes for the book of Isaiah and a different person doing the notes for the book of John. And you sort of have specialists in those areas. Um, but there is theological agreement across the board. But they'll give you sometimes, well, here's two or three ways that people interpret this. Here's the main views. And they'll sort of leave it up to you. And so I, I really like both of those resources. So if you don't have a good study Bible, I would recommend the ESV study Bible um, and or the MacArthur study Bible. <clears throat> and if you have questions as you're, as you're reading the Word, that's just a great quick resource to open up and look and see, okay, what are, what are the basics I need to know? And the, the ESV study Bible in the back um, has a number of helpful sections. It's got a, a survey of church history. It's got a doctrinal overview. It's like a little mini systematic theology in the back in the appendix. It's got explanations of various world religions and cults and, and sort of where they um, go wrong according to scripture. Um, it's got a bunch of really helpful material in the back, um, in, in the back section. So it's not just notes and comments on verses. Uh, there's also sort of just a, um, a general library that covers all the bases of what really every Christian should have access to. So we have those study Bibles here in our church library. You can go look at them anytime, um, but I would encourage you, if you don't own one, to get one, um, because a lot of the, uh, the questions you may have as you read the Word, um, there's good, faithful answers in some of those study Bibles. Not all study Bibles are created equal, but those are two of my favorites. Um, there's others 
that are also good, but I think those are two of the best. So just a little plug, um, if you are serious about understanding the word and growing in your faith, um, <clears throat> you need good resources, and those are two good resources we would recommend. Um, I was going to bring them up here and show you and put them here so you could look, but they're in the library if you want to go look at them later. So that was one uh, brief plug I wanted to give. And then secondly, just to remind you, the format for this class is if you guys have any questions, um, something you didn't understand or something you wanted to know more about, or maybe it's not so much a question as much as you'd like us to maybe um, explain further on, on something um, that, that we maybe briefly touched on in that lesson, this is an opportunity for you to share those things. Um, this is not as much a discussion class where we're all sharing insights or, or anecdotes. I know we enjoy that. We enjoy the fellowship of just everybody sharing things, but we do that in our small groups. This, we want to keep this class more narrowly focused. So if you have a question or if you'd like for us to elaborate further on something that we, we touched on in our lessons, now's a great time to ask that. Um, every month, we also encourage you guys to send in questions, and typically no one ever does that, but we had... Uh, five questions submitted um, over the last few weeks. So I'm going to start by working through those. And if you guys have additional questions, feel free to raise your hand and we can add those in. So one question that was submitted was this, can more angels fall? And does the number of demons increase? So we defined uh, demons as angels that rebelled against God and followed Satan and they fell. And so the question is, can that keep happening? Um, and I don't think so. Uh, there's not explicit, direct um, comment on this in Scripture, but there are a few different passages that seem to indicate that that's not what happens. Um, and one would be 1 Timothy 5.21. 1 Timothy 5.21 uh, says, In the presence of God and of Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So Paul mentions elect angels. And if I could remind you back to our, our chapter on soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, we know that election is God's sovereign choice and his appointing to salvation of those whom he will save. Now, since angels are not necessarily saved, they're not redeemed, elect <clears throat> must mean those that were appointed to remain faithful. Um, and so it seems that that is a, um, a, a concrete number. And that there are some who were appointed to remain faithful. Um, and if we look at Jude verse 6 and 2 Peter 2 verse 4, um, we see a reference to a historical failure. Um, Jude 6 refers to angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Um, 2 Peter 2 4 says, God did not spare angels when they sinned. So there seems to be a historical reference um, it seems that there was a test and that some of the angels failed while others passed the test. And if we think about even the nature of this test, we know that Adam faced a test in the garden, did he not? And he failed, and then it was over. We know that Jesus faced a test in the wilderness uh, and later in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as Jesus was tempted, he passed the test. And that test is now over. Jesus is not still being tested in reference to his obedience to the Father and his perfect fulfillment of the law. So it also would be reasonable to think that the angels faced a test, that some of them failed, and the elect angels passed the test. And it seems to be not something that's in flux anymore. But again, that's not something that's explicit. We're sort of looking at a few different um, principles in Scripture and drawing from that. But my personal view would be that um, the angels are not 
uh, still in this ongoing state of probation where they can either fail and, and, and sort of fall away and be cast out and become unclean spirits that follow Satan, or they have to keep passing the test in order to remain faithful. It seems that that's done. So that would be my perspective. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. I I did uh, think about this when you mentioned this question, and I went back to Luke 10.18. This is the only reference that I could find to uh, angels falling, and that's when, uh, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, but it doesn't say anything about his angels, yet we know there are fallen angels. Um, So, like you said, as you prayed, uh, mm-hmm. we, we don't want to go beyond the text because yes. some things we don't know, but yet we know that there are fallen angels. So the implication, we would assume that that would have been the time mm-hmm. that they fell. Now, I did find one other reference that I'll mention from uh, Revelation twelve nine. Mm-hmm. That's which, what I was going to bring up. Yeah, which is, Agree. I'll go ahead and read this. Uh, this is futuristic. And the great dragon was thrown down, the, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And as we've learned, uh, Satan has the ability to operate on earth, and he has the the ability to roam to heaven. Um, Does that mean his angels can do the same thing? Apparently, they will be thrown down. But that doesn't necessarily mean uh, we don't see any other text. I couldn't find any other text Mm -hmm. that angels are are being thrown down. So it seems the best that we can discern is that there was a finite number at one point. Mm -hmm they will be thrown down permanently mm-hmm. at some point and not have access to heaven. So. Yes, and there's another passage in Revelation that refers to the dragon um, falling down and sweeping a third of the stars with him. And the stars can sometimes refer to spiritual beings, and there's some metaphor going on there, but that seems to be a one-time situation and not an ongoing, not an ongoing one. Yeah, Craig? It's a good follow-up question. So how much does Satan understand about God's plan of redemption? Um, Scott and I talked about that this week. Um, Satan is very intelligent, highly intelligent. He's aware of everything written in Scripture. Um, So he's not foolish in the intellectual sense. Um, But he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. So I don't think he always understands how everything's going to be fulfilled. But he knows at least as much as we know. But at the same time, we know that a true understanding of Scripture, fully grasping it, is something that requires the illumination of the Holy Spirit, which obviously he doesn't have. Um, so I, I do think he knows more than we give him credit for, and probably more than many of us, um, uh, because he's been around forever, has had a chance to observe and, and add to his knowledge, um, and he's very aware of what Scripture says. He's a highly intelligent spiritual creature, but he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. So. And, and I'm glad you asked that question because in my lesson I alluded to the fact that Satan doesn't understand scripture. I, I would amend that uh, because I think uh, in talking with atheists, some atheists know scripture better than many Christians. Uh, Satan probably knows scripture well. He quoted it to, to, to tempt mm-hmm. Christ. And so uh, at the time that, uh, that he was interacting with Peter or Judas, of course John hadn't written the book of Revelation yet. So he didn't know the details, but uh, like J.D. mentioned to me, he did have access to the Psalms at that point, and certainly Isaiah 53, and, and had a fairly good idea of what was going to happen. And even in Genesis 3, mm-hmm. you know, he knew that he would be crushed eventually. So uh, I, I don't want to leave the impression that Satan's completely ignorant of the future, but yet the fact is that regardless of what's happening as Christ is going to the cross, 
he's going to be true to his nature mm -hmm. and hate and, and desire whatever fleshly thing he wants at that moment. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to think that Satan is ignorant. That's, that's mm -hmm. not the point. So I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah, I, in, in high school, I had a baseball teammate who struck out, walked into the dugout, and punched the boards on the back of the dugout and broke his hand. And it wasn't that he didn't understand what would happen if he threw his fist into the wall. It wasn't a matter of intellect and knowledge. It's just that he was so angry he couldn't help it. So I think Satan understands very much what God's plan is. But he hates God so much he just can't help it. Like Scott said, he's going to be true to his nature. And so he just can't not. Even though he knows what the result is going to be, there's just um, an evil and wicked um, rebellion against God which is going to be part of the explanation. So he's not this, this passive you know, chess player who's trying to outsmart God. Um, and God isn't dependent on outsmarting Satan to beat him. I mean, he can, it's kind of, I told Scott this when we were talking, it's sort of like when, again, another sports analogy, I'm sorry, but when, and when, a, when a football team lines up and the quarterback tells the other team, we're going to run it up the middle and you can't stop us. And then they run it up the middle because they're just stronger. I think that God doesn't feel like he has to outsmart Satan. He can tell him what he's going to do, still do it. Satan can't help but do what's according to his nature. And, and God wins because he's more powerful. So, but yes, but, I, but I, I don't think we should underestimate the depth to which Satan understands Scripture or even God's plan because he's highly intelligent. Correct. Yes, yes. Job tells us that Satan is underneath God's sovereign authority. And, you know, in the Gospels, we see Jesus often using the language of having ears but not hearing and seeing but not, see, not really seeing. So Satan reads, understands, sees, but there's a depth of understanding that he doesn't have access to because he doesn't have the illumination of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have the grace of God. So, yes, we agree with that. So, Al. Good question. So if the number of demons is not growing, why is the world getting worse? Why does mankind get worse? Um, I think the book of Genesis speaks to that just in the first several chapters. Um, and even if you look historically, the number of men on the earth is increasing. There's more people alive today than there were 20 years ago, and more people alive today than there were 100 years ago. So and again, the source of evil is not purely Satan and the demons. We are our own, we're the source of evil in the world just as much. And so human depravity increases. And um, in, in the days of Noah, we see that sin and wickedness were increasing because everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And it was always evil continually. We see in Romans 1 that God's judgment on the earth at times is to simply give people over to their sin. So when things get worse on the earth, that doesn't mean that Satan and his demons are increasing in number. What it means is that man may be increasing in number and that our sin um, spreads. It's like cancer. It only gets worse unless it's killed. And if God takes his hands off and gives people over, then things are going to get a lot worse. So I, I think that we can take most of the blame for why things are getting worse in the world. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, other people, not me, sure. So, Joe. Okay, yeah. So maybe my stories don't always, you know. Yeah. And I'll just add this, even if the number of demons do increase, that's no threat to God, and it doesn't change our approach. It doesn't change our responsibility to resist the devil and he will flee, to put on our armor, Ephesians chapter 6, and to believe the truth. Yes. Yeah, so the timeline, this is, our, this is my view of it, but I could be wrong, and it wouldn't really change that much. So anything else you want to add to that? No, I can't add anything to that. All right, a couple other questions we had submitted, and this kind of falls along the same line. Um, it was stated clearly that angels, demons, cannot be redeemed. How can we be so sure? Is this an argument from scriptural absence? I understand that it's theologically or logically deduced um, because of the argument Jesus became a man to die for men. He didn't become an angel and die for angels. But again, why are we so certain in the statement? So very good question. And I encourage you guys, just because you hear something said doesn't mean you should necessarily believe it unless it's grounded in scripture and unless you're persuaded by what Scripture says. So let me give a few more verses that maybe give us some, um, some perspective on that. Again, 2 Peter 2.4 says that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Um, Jude uh, 6, again, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Matthew 25 tells us um, that the eternal fire, speaking of hell, is prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, And I think the most conclusive passage would be Hebrews chapter 2. So Hebrews chapter 2, start in verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, talking about the incarnation of Christ, that Jesus became a man. Why? So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And here's the key phrase, verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Not for the sins of the angels, but for the sins of the people. He didn't become like the angels in order to help them. He became a man in order to help men. So I think that that verse in Hebrews 2, this verse 14 through 17, is probably the most conclusive passage that indicates um, God's not redeeming angels. He's redeeming men. Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't see... Any, anything you want to add to that, or is that kind of clear things up? I'm asking, I know who, who wrote the email. So, Yeah, okay, thanks, Cody. Yeah, I appreciate it. And thank you, Cody, for sending in a question. Again, usually you guys just throw questions at us on the spot. It was really nice to be able to actually prepare a little bit and, uh, and look up a few verses before. So thank you for doing that. 
Um, a third question that was asked, do we have guardian angels? Um, and and I, if you remember the, the lesson on angels, we said we need to get our understanding of angels not from pop culture or from tradition, um, definitely not Hollywood. We want to get our understanding of angels from Scripture. So what does Scripture say about guardian angels? Um, 2 Kings chapter 6, I think I mentioned that, um, that story with Elisha and his servant. He didn't just have a guardian angel. There was a whole army of angels that were sent to protect Elisha and his servant. Um, so we do see angels um, offering protection, um, serving God and his people in that way. Um, Genesis chapter 19 would be another occasion where there's two angels who show up to Sodom, and they're involved in protecting Lot and rescuing him and his family. Um, in Acts chapter 12, we see that there's an angel who springs Peter out of prison. Um, it's kind of funny. He says he strikes him in the side and says, wake up, we've got to go. Um, it's a really interesting story if you read that in Acts 12. So it does seem that angels have a protective and even a, a rescuing type role um, often in Scripture. Um, and perhaps one of the most famous passages would be Psalm 91.11, which says, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Um, likewise, Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So do we have guardian angels? Well, we know that angels minister to people on behalf of, of God. They do his will, and that can look like protection or rescue or a number of different things. Um, what's not clear from Scripture is whether or not you have an individual personal angel appointed to you. Um, the way that one author put it is, we don't know if the angels play man-to-man defense or zone. Um, uh, we, don't know if, um, we don't know if there's one angel looking out for you or a whole army of angels looking out for you. All we know is that angels at times fulfill this kind of a role in protecting people and serving God. So that would be a question about guardian angels. Hopefully that gives some more clarity on that. Um, Question, Scott, that goes to what you taught on. Fourth question, what did Jesus mean when he said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter? Was Satan speaking through Peter in that instance? What was going on there? Mark chapter 8, Matthew 16, we have that story recorded. Yeah, and that's a good question. I mean, it's it's a fascinating question. I mean, imagine... Jesus speaking directly to one of the apostles, saying, Satan. So we know that when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, uh, we cannot be inhabited by another spirit. There isn't room in the inn for that. So to assume that Peter himself would have been indwelt by a a demonic spirit or Satan himself, uh, it seems contrary to Scripture. So we can only surmise that when Jesus said that to Peter, that he was saying, you have been influenced by Satan. You know, in his words when he said, your, your mind is set on the things of man, not of God. Mm-hmm. He's referencing the world's thinking. Mm-hmm. And that is from Satan. So I think it was, this is my opinion, a way of getting Peter to realize what he was saying by speaking so directly to him. I do not think that he was speaking directly to Satan um, because Satan was not in Peter, but he was certainly being, I would say, indirectly influenced by his thinking. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about that, and I agree with that, is Jesus holds Peter responsible. He's not saying, get behind me, Satan, and saying, Peter, you don't realize this, but Satan's using you, and like, he doesn't come down on Satan, he comes down on Peter. 
He says, your mindset needs to change. You've got your mindset on the wrong thing. So he holds Peter accountable, holds Peter responsible, like you said, for echoing the, the agenda of Satan instead of having a clue what was going on. And it's interesting, later in the Gospels, Jesus warns Peter, he says, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. But the implication is that Jesus isn't going to let that happen. So, yeah, he's not going to be repossessed, you know, by his old master. He belongs to Jesus. So I think that's a, a good clarification. Any other questions about that specific passage? When Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, as far as the implications of that? It's good. So is it okay for your wife to call you your dad's name if you're acting like him? Um, depends, maybe. <laughs> we can talk later. <laughs> I'd want to ask more questions. So, <laughs> But yeah, that's kind of what's going on here. Is you know who you're acting like? You know who you sound like right now? I mean, I think that's very similar. It's in the spirit of what Jesus was doing. So yeah, it's a good point. Um, Another question about Satan, Scott. Um, this question came in. How, what does it mean that Satan is the god of this world? How can he be the ruler of this world? How does that square with Jesus being king, with God being sovereign? Um, you know, that can be kind of maybe confusing. Yeah, yeah. And again, we have to remember um, that uh, these are the authors of Scripture giving these terms. Um, and and when, when they say that, it can be taken in a sarcastic way kind of, a, of, a, of, a, of an understanding. Because we know who the one true God is, there is only one creator God. So when Satan is referred to as the God of this world, it, it definitely confines him to the realm that is not where God sits on his throne. Mm-hmm. Okay, So it's, it's, again, it's when we call him the God of this world or the prince of the power of the air or the ruler of this world, mm-hmm. it is strictly... Um, describing his position and certainly not his his character or his attributes he is not deity mm-hmm. he has none of the divine attributes of the triune god so that is merely a positional description the god of this world and it should be written with a lowercase g because you know the pagan nations have worshiped many gods that doesn't make them our creator god mm-hmm. so that's that's a distinction that uh, that needs to be kept in mind it doesn't yes. mean that he is the God, for certain. Or even a God in the conception of the way the world might think. Um, but he does have authority. He does have power. And he is pulling the strings. And again, that's something that's clear from Scripture. Second Corinthians 4, 4 speaks of the God of this world blinding the minds of unbelievers. Um, John fourteen thirty, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. So even if he is the ruler of this world, the God of this world, he has no claim on Christ. He has no authority over Christ. First um, John five nineteen. we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So there's a distinction there. Those who belong to God are not subject to the God of this world. And we who submit to the rule of Christ are not under the authority of the ruler of this world. We have been set free from that. Um, Ephesians 2 talks about our freedom. It says that we once walked, you know, before our salvation, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But that's our old life, and we have freedom in Christ. So we're not under his authority or his rule. 
and it's temporary. Right, right. We, we know that, that he does not have ultimate authority. And in fact, when we, when we talk about us as the believers and who we are subject to, um, Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us, the believers, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So he may be the God of this world. And, and when we talk about the world, that's his world. We're in but not of the world. I believe this, this scripture describes uh, the kingdom that we do belong to, that we know we belong to. So he does not have ultimate authority. He is the God of this world. That is not our world. We just happen to live here. Yes, very much agreed. So thank you guys for sending those questions in. That was five questions. That's a record. I think we've never had more than one question submitted. So thank you guys for doing that. And we can open this up. If there's other additional questions you guys would like to ask about angels, demons, um, Satan, as far as what scripture teaches about those things. Yeah. So, um, in Samuel, when it's talking about uh, Satan being compared to um, an angel, a demon doing this, as an angel of God, I believe specifically it's 29. Um, and I don't know if I can just, I feel like there's other circumstances where they uh, could not take it. It's in the rhetoric where it seems like they're implying that angels, angels of God. Yeah, so 1 Samuel 29, um, this is coming from a Philistine king um, who who ruled over a specific city. Um, And he said, I know you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. And that's a statement about um, David's character and integrity. He's saying, I know you're a righteous man. So... I don't think we want to take our understanding of angels from a, Philisti- a Philistine king, from a pagan king. But, but what this is basically stating is it's a statement about his integrity and his character. So are angels blameless? The angels of God are in the sense that they've not sinned. They've never sinned. So there is no blame. You cannot hold them accountable for wrongdoing because they haven't done anything wrong. Well, I think that's the fallen angels. Um, the fallen angels specifically, and if there's a sense in which we judge the holy angels, it's not a judgment of condemnation. It would be rather um, a, a place of authority in making decisions in, in an organizational sense, but not in the sense of holding them accountable for wrongdoing. If there was wrongdoing, then they are going to be condemned by God um, and sent to the lake of fire. So maybe there's a sense in which we participate in that judgment when it says we'll judge angels, but it may just have to do with we'll have a position of... of authority and ruling over the angels in the eternal kingdom. And, and that's how I, I take that statement. So good question from 1 Samuel 29. Blameless as an angel of God. And it's ironic if you read that story because David was actually um, deceiving that king and uh, putting up a false front. So this guy actually didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Yes, so there's a positive judgment in saying this is good, this is right. Praise be to God for the faithfulness of these beings he created. Yeah, there, there can be that aspect of judgment as well. Good question. My daughter, Courtney, is teaching uh, children's church this morning, but she had a question. Okay. <clears throat> and that is, does Satan 
know us personally, each one of us individually. So how did you answer it? <laughs> well, I... Come on, Dad. Dad, ask Dad. He knows. I mean, that's... <laughs> Sorry, Courtney. Dad is not omniscient. Um, I, I answered it like this. I, I think Satan is the great deceiver, and he can fool us into thinking certain things, and he certainly, um, like he told God when he went to, uh, to, uh, to sift Job, I've been wandering about the earth, and then God said, have you considered my servant Job? And he knew something about Job. So, like we said, he's a real person. He, he knows certain people. I would suspect some people he knows better than others. Um, but I don't think, because, because of the fact of what we know about him, uh, Satan is very wise, very intelligent, but he is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He, he mm-hmm. doesn't have the ability to know every single person. And, uh, I mean, there, there are many instances where, um, well, I, I took a few notes on this, where he can't be in all places at all times. So mm-hmm. there's, there's no way physically. Uh, like when, uh, when Christ cast the demons out of the possessed man, they had to go from, from the man to the pigs. They weren't in both places at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, James 4.4, 4, you said this in your, your Sunday school lesson last week. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So if he's not with me, where does he go? He can't be omnipresent. So mm-hmm. that's the best way I can answer it. God mm-hmm. knows us before we were born. He knows the hairs on our heads. Uh, he knew my name before I was knit together in my mother's womb. Satan does not know that. He does not possess these divine eternal characteristics. So I would mm-hmm. say to Courtney, no, Satan doesn't know us intimately. He may want you to think that he knows you. He is the accuser. He's, he's accusing God of everything that we've done, but I, I don't think he knows everything about everyone. That's mm-hmm. giving him too much credit. I agree. And I, I think it can be almost a little bit arrogant sometimes for us to assume that we're so significant that Satan himself would personally need to spend time working on us. Um, because he can't be everywhere at once. Um, we know that he's active. We know that he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So he is engaged in the war. But scripture speaks of principalities and powers, and, and there seems to be a hierarchy. And Satan's really good at delegating. So we will experience spiritual opposition um, that represents Satan. And so if Jesus can say to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because his influence you know, has, has made you participate in his agenda. You know, I think that Satan can delegate to any number of lower-ranking um, demons you know, to carry out his will in the world. And we're going to have direct opposition in that way. But I think it's probably rare that any of us would be big enough fish to fry, that Satan himself would personally spend time on us. And, and I could be wrong, but like he can't be here at this church and in London and in South Africa and in Australia and in China and there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of Christians worshiping today, even at the same time. But he's got a large number of, of um, servants to do his will. So I agree with you. He, he can't be everywhere at once. But his, his, his influence and his agenda is being carried out everywhere at once because of the number of, of angels who are serving him. So it's a good, good answer. Lori.
Right. I mean, we have, I mean, a threefold enemy. It's the world and the flesh and the devil. Now, when I'm experiencing something, some sort of opposition or struggle in my life, it makes me feel very noble if I feel like that's the devil. It makes me feel very guilty if I know that's coming from my own flesh. And so sometimes we're quick to blame it on Satan and say, the devil made me do it, or, or this is just Satan opposing me. And, and we need to be quick to interrogate our own hearts. You know, David prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. He seems far more concerned that there would be blind spots to sin in his own life than he seems to assume that any opposition, any problem comes from the enemy. And at the same time, as a deceiver, we know that Satan, at times, as the accuser of the brethren, wants to convince us that everything is our fault and forget that we do have an enemy. So there's a balance there. But we need to be quick to not just immediately assume everything is external opposition. We need to question our own flesh, and that needs a lot of our attention in terms of the battle against evil. It's the world, the system of thinking, the ideas that are out there. It's our flesh, our own sinful desires, and it's the devil. It's all three. That's the battlefront. So I think you wanted to... Yeah, I, that's where I was going to go. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because sometimes it may be the Holy Spirit saying, come, you need to work on you. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is you. Yeah. And it's time for you to work on you. So I've heard that question. Yes, that's good. Other, other questions this morning? Is there a place for the Nephilim in the plan of redemption? A place for the Nephilim. Is there a place for the Nephilim in the plan of redemption? You want to tackle this one? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the Nephilim is a reference to Genesis 6, if that's a new term for you. Um, and this is one of the most debated passages in Scripture as to what the Nephilim are. And there's a couple different views. Now, this is right before the flood. And the context of this is that Moses is explaining how the world got so bad that God would determine he needed to wipe everything out and start over with one family says, when man, verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the, spirit, or then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Very next verse, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And this is what leads us up to the flood. So there's several different things you have to interpret in this passage. Um, you have to decide who the sons of God are um, and why God would see this as such a significant sin. And then who the Nephilim are, um, these mighty men who were of old. And there's like two or three different um, streams of interpretation here. So, um, without getting into all of it, I'll just say that one view is that there were spiritual uh, creatures, these fallen angels, and that's what the sons of God are, and that they cohabitated with mortal man and produced offspring that were these mighty men of old, the Nephilim, and people would see that as the, as the giants, uh, the ancestors to the giants like um, Goliath. So that would be one view. 
Another view would be that the sons of God refers to um, those who believed, those who were part of the, the line of Seth, the, the chosen line, and that they made the sinful decision to intermarry with unbelieving, wicked generations, and that they were involved in polygamy. They took as many wives as they chose, and they seemed intent on building their own kingdom, you know, men of renown. So there's a few different um, tracks of interpretation, and there's really faithful, godly, um, wise scholars that are in all of those different views. There's another view that says um, that, these, that, that this refers to, the sons of God refers to kings and rulers because sometimes in ancient civilizations, whether it's Pharaoh or even, even the, the Israelite kings, they were referred to as, the son of, as sons of God, um, that there was human rulers that were practicing polygamy and, and doing this. So th- there's like a couple different... Um, ways you can interpret this. Um, and so it's depending on how you interpret it that you would answer that question. Can the Nephilim be redeemed? If they are human um, offspring, then they can. It appears that they weren't because only Noah and his family survived the flood. Um, if they are sort of this mix of spiritual and, and mortal this kind of unique demigod-type race that's not human, um, that would be very unique. Um, and again, they don't seem to have survived the flood, so it doesn't seem that they were. So if that's just raising a million questions in your mind, don't go Google it, because you'll get into a lot of really weird <laughs> stuff, but um, get a couple faithful commentaries or study Bibles and kind of look and see um, what's out there. But some people, they start studying this and they get into all of these rabbit trails about aliens and ancient civilizations and all sorts of paranormal stuff. And I'll just say this, not that we shouldn't study this out, but it's kind of fun to study stuff like this because it's, it's fascinating, it's intriguing, and I don't feel any conviction. This doesn't tell me I need to change at all. This doesn't really challenge me to grow in holiness or wisdom. Um, so I, I would encourage someone, yeah, study this out and kind of learn what the different views are. But I wouldn't become obsessed over some of these more obscure references because there's other things that we probably need to spend more effort studying that will have a more direct impact on our love for Christ and our, our maturity in Christ. I, won't, I shouldn't be so quick to, to take a pass on this because I do, I, I do find it a fascinating subject. But I totally agree with what J.D. says. It is definitely not... Um, uh, an elevated scriptural doctrinal uh, thing to worry about the Nephilim. I mean, we're given very limited information on it because, mm-hmm. you know, in the ultimate sense, uh, regardless of how many demons there are, whether the Nephilim were the sons of man or the sons of, of demons, it, 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 you know, God is sovereign over all of it. I will say this, though, because it is, does fascinate me a little bit. Um, if you read the New Testament and, and you look, uh, if you research the sons of God, it is only interpreted as us, the believers, we are the sons of God. However, and I'll, <clears throat> I may lean a little bit, some of you know me as a biblical literalist, I, I try to mm-hmm. honor what the authors say. There are two references in the book of Job mm-hmm. uh, to the sons of God. Uh, Job 1.6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan uh, also came among them. We know who that's referencing in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And then in Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, in Job chapter 2 again, verse 1, again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So could it be that the sons of God referenced there in Genesis 6 were um, 
demonic beings? It could be, but I don't know for sure. But it is one of the interpretations. So, but like I say, in the, in the end result, it really doesn't matter what we believe about the Nephilim, but it yeah. is a fascinating topic. Yeah, no matter which interpretation you take, it's fairly inconsequential. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, people have been having this debate. I was reading this past week. Um, Augustine, early church father, is laying out the pros and cons of both views because they weren't sure about it back then either. So it'll probably always be something that people interpret differently and kind of wrestle with. But, Dom? Where did Satan's first desire for evil come from? Well, I, I think that's, that's uh, found in Isaiah 14, 12, and then its companion passage, Ezekiel 28, where um, it, it, it says, it, it talks, that's the only history we have of Satan. You were created a, a, a guardian, beautiful guardian cherub. I placed you in heaven. But because of his pride, I mean, he was beautiful, he sinned because of his pride, so, and then he was cast down. We don't have a time stamp on it. We don't know when it happened. Assumably after day seven when God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, sometime after that, his pride got the best of him. So we don't know exactly, but uh, we don't have any uh, scriptural evidence of him being prideful or sinful before that. Yeah, seems to come from his own, his own inner being. It's 10.15, so we need to wrap up. If you guys have more questions, we can always keep talking. But we'll be dismissed and back here in about 15 minutes for worship.